Well, I would ask you to return to the book of Revelation as we take a break from our normal study here to prepare our hearts for Advent, prepare our hearts for this Christmas season. What I want to do is, uh, is spend some time over these next five weeks unpacking some of the great truths of the incarnation of Jesus. What does it mean that He came to earth? when the kingdom of, this, of God broke into the kingdom of this world, and to take some time to, to unpack this. Because I believe that, that if we kind of expand our understanding of the birth of Christ, if we push ourselves to see it in, in, in bigger ways, I believe that it will answer some of the most pressing questions of the ages. In fact, each week we're going to take a pressing question of the age to unpack it and look at it and see how, how the incarnation of Jesus answers that question. The five questions we're going to look at over the next five weeks are, the first one we'll look at today, what will the future of the world be like? And we're going to unpack that today. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at what went wrong in the world. Why is it in the state that it's in? Third question, what's the point of life? Fourth question, is God passive? Sometimes it seems as if God's doing nothing in this world. Is God passive? Fifth question, what does God want from me? We're going to look at those five questions, and I believe those are five important questions that people ask in different forms and different ways throughout their life. And I believe that when you really kind of push our our understanding of, of the incarnation of Christ, expand it, blow it up a little bit, you begin to see that Christ's entrance into the world answers those five questions and attacks them rather strongly. Now, the first one we're going to look at is this first question. What will the future of the world be like? There's no more timely question than this. This past week, I had a conversation with a businessman who was very nervous about the future of the world. And he was expressing to me all of his anxieties about the, the economic cliff that we're facing and all of these issues that are going on. And, and, and he was wondering, what is the future of my business going to be like? What is the future of my family going to be like? What is, the, what is going on? He's, he was just nervous. He had a lot of anxiety. And if you really look at the news, watch it and read it, and, and, and we can totally keep current now with the news all the time, right, with your cell phones and everything else. You can just constantly be told what's happening every moment of the day. It would be very easy to get anxious about the world, right? You think about it. What are we facing? A fiscal cliff, right? That's what everybody's talking about, this fiscal cliff. What's going to happen? Is everything going to fall apart financially? Internationally, I feel like we're one bad sneeze away from war in the Middle East. Somebody sneezes on the wrong side of something, and boom, the whole thing's going to go up like a powder keg. It feels that way, doesn't it? Anxious. Socially, people are worried. What is going on? Is there a decline socially? What's happening to the morals that used to be around? And what's going on? You can't even watch TV anymore without you being exposed to all kinds of immorality, and you see this kind of social destruction going on. More people today have stopped talking about career advancement and are now just talking about trying to find a job. Right? I mean, these are some things to be worried about. And, and if I were to close in prayer right here, we'd be pretty anxious, wouldn't we? Right? If I say, okay, let's just close in prayer. Go in peace. Right? There would be, be pretty intense thing. Because there's a lot going on in this world. But, 
The question is this, did God tell us what the future is going to be like? Did God lay out the future? He did. And when you understand the future, when you understand the future, it gives you boundaries for living in the present. I remember a while back I was watching an old black and white detective film with my son Andrew. One of these old uh, film noir detective shows, you know, and, and uh, the, uh, the detective was uh, going into the burglar's office and he was rummaging through the desk of the, the burglar and then the next scene, the burglar is coming up the steps to his office. So it's like kind of a suspenseful moment. And Andrew says, Dad, he's not going to die. Because the whole movie's about him. And the movie wouldn't end now. Okay. Yeah, he's right. He's exactly right, right? He figured it out. He's not going to die now. So he's like, oh, he's at peace. There's something about knowing the end or knowing the reality that he, this, isn't, this is what's going to happen to this guy. He's going to make it all the way through to the end. I'm not worried. Not anxious. What's amazing about God is that he gave us the end of the story. He gave us the end of the story. And when you understand the end of the story, I believe that you can understand how to live in the present world. Now that's what the book of Revelation is actually about. Now the interesting thing about the book of Revelation is that it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not a revelation of the Antichrist, which a lot of people think it is. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's the revelation of what Jesus is going to do to bring about the consummation of the ages. But the interesting thing is that the consummation of the ages that he is bringing about in the book of Revelation, the whole process of it began at his incarnation. So he began something when he came to earth that he completes in the book of Revelation. And so if we are to look at the book of Revelation and see what he completes, it can actually give us some insight into what he began. And when we can see what he began at his coming, and we begin to start looking at those scriptures that talk about him coming into this world, you want to know what that does? That gives us the comfort. We can say, ah, we know where this world is going. I can have a sense of comfort. I need to know where my future is. And I need to let that future govern my present. That's why Revelation was written. Message to these churches that were facing persecution to say, listen, let Jesus and His work bring you comfort as you endure the trials of today. So, what we're going to do is we're going to jump to the head of the story, the end of the story. We're going to look at the consummation of the ages. Then we're going to cycle back and look at how... The incarnation of Jesus began that work. And we'll begin to start seeing pictures of it in the coming of Jesus. And my goal for you, for all of us, is threefold. Number one, I really want this to give you a sense of awe at the birth of Jesus. As you think about Christ coming into this world, I want this just to paint such a huge picture of Jesus, you would just be like, wow, I'm in awe of you, Jesus. I have nothing to say. I'm in awe. The second thing that I hope that it does is that it gives you a sense of hope. A sense of hope. The type of hope Michael talked about. That hope of confidence. that says, "All right, I believe that what you began when you entered this world, you will complete. And I'm going to place my hope in that. And that's where I'm going to rest. 
And third, I hope that it gives you, my desire is that it would give you a sense of purpose. Because that, what Jesus inaugurated, what He began at His incarnation, He's drawing us into to participate with Him. And this should give us a sense of purpose in this life. Now what we have to do is first get a glimpse into the future. So let's do that together. Let's get a glimpse of the future. Look here at Revelation 21. John gets us a glimpse of the end of the age. He gets a glimpse of what final eternity is going to be like. You know, we talk about going to heaven, and, and the reality of going to heaven and living in heaven for all eternity is actually bigger than just this kind of spiritual dimension of heaven. Some people think of eternity as just kind of wearing white robes and floating around on clouds and having halos over your head, and, and it's not even remotely close to what, what, what eternity is going to be like. And so what, what we want to do is let's change our, 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 our vocabulary and say that an eternity is waiting for us. And John gets a glimpse of what eternity will be like for those who trusted in Christ. Now let's look at this glimpse of eternity. Look at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now if we were to look at Revelation 1 through 20, what we would see is Jesus systematically doing away with evil. He's systematically just doing away with it, kind of step by step, going through a process of bringing justice and righteousness to this earth, till finally at the very end, when Satan is cast into the abyss and the earth as we know it no longer exists. But then God does this recreation. And John sees this moment, and, he, and he's picturing, and Jesus, or God allows him to see exactly what's going to happen, and he sees a new heaven and a new earth. And everything that he understood before has been gone, and now he sees this whole new thing. Now let's look at this new heaven and new earth. Look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So suddenly he sees this beautiful thing, the New Jerusalem, which is just another term for heaven. What we'd understand is heaven. Jerusalem was the place where God dwelt on earth, remember? It's where the temple was. It's another way of saying that this is, this is God's heaven. It's coming down and suddenly it's making its abode onto earth and it's so glorious. The only thing I can picture is a wedding day. And, that, and that's a powerful image. Right? You, you don't get my view at a wedding when I'm performing a wedding, but, but there's really this cool moment at a wedding, when, for me at least, it's my joy of it, is I'm standing there and the doors open, and there's the bride and her dad just standing back there, and she's all beautiful. And then I do this at every wedding. I look up at the guy, and I look at the bride, and I look at the guy, and I look at the bride. And the guy usually kind of is standing there like this at first, and the doors open, and then he begins to smile, and then, and then his knees start to shake, and he starts breathing heavy. It's true. Guys do that. They get all nervous and shaky, and they're seeing their bride, and she looks beautiful, and she's coming down the aisle, and there's all this kind of emotion building up front. You ought to come stand with me at the next wedding, okay? You could feel the emotion building at that moment. That's this moment. He's saying, this thing, it's so beautiful. The only earthly picture I have 
in my mind, is a wedding. When this glorious, beautiful heaven is coming down and coming to earth. It's incredible. And then John goes on to explain it to us. Look at, look at verses 3 and 4 as he explains it. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is a beautiful description of what eternity will be like. Now there's five things he mentions here about eternity. Five things. This is eternity for the child of God. For the one who's trusted in Christ, this is the guaranteed future. Five things about this eternity. Let's look at the first one. The first one is this. The spiritual world and the physical world unite. They unite. Notice this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, right now, in one sense, I'm going to debunk what I'm about to say in, in about five minutes, but, but just go with me now until I debunk it later. In one sense, there's a separation between heaven and earth. Right? I mean, I mean there's things that we don't see right now. I don't see the angels looking on this moment right now, and they are, giving glory to the Father for this eclectic bunch of people worshiping Him, singing these songs with one voice. I don't see that. I don't see the spiritual warfare going on of the demons that are trying to get you to be worried about something or continue to be mad at someone or to be distracted with your day or wondering how the bears are going to do or whatever's going on in your brain. That temptation. I don't see the angels fighting off the demons to keep you focused on the Word of God. I don't see that. When loved ones that we know of go to be with the Lord, we don't see them again. They enter into this spiritual dimension that we're separated from. Now that dimension is just as real as the physical dimension, but they're two separate places until eternity. Eternity comes... And now that place that I have to physically die to partake of suddenly comes here and now the physical and the spiritual are one place. You've heard me say this before. I will be able to stand in the presence of a holy God and experience all of His glory and talk to angels and then go over and sit on a rock and eat an apple with you. These two worlds will no longer be separated. They will be one. And the greatest thing about these these two worlds coming together is that God is with us. His presence is there. Seen, felt, experienced. The whole thing. He is with us. It's a beautiful picture. No longer that sense of of, of praying and, and believing by faith that my prayers have, have, have gone to the throne room of God, now I will be right there in His presence and be able to experience that presence in a way that I can't right now, in a way that's limited right now. God with us. The two worlds unite. That's the first description. 
Second description is that of personal restoration. Personal restoration. Look, look at this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's a beautiful description. Wiping away the tears is, is, is what you do when you're trying to bring comfort to someone. Right? Child's crying and you put them on your lap and you wipe their tears away, right? You're bringing that sense of comfort to them. God knows that when we enter eternity, we enter eternity in one sense with the pain of this world that we've just experienced. No justice is ever perfect justice. No time does you ever think, you know, there is not one human being in the world that will ever make anything exactly right the way you need it to be. We could be striving for justice and we'll never get it. There's always an emptiness to every moment. There's pain, there's misery, there's a heartache. We come, and in one sense, the picture is this. We're coming into heaven with all the battle scars of living in this world. And then the Father just wipes them all away and says, I'm restoring you. I'll make it all right. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I'm going to make it all right. I know right now you're carrying the pain of this world, but the day of eternity, God will make it all right. Wipes the tears, restores you. Beautiful picture. That's eternity, right? Physical, spiritual world unite. All things are made right. There's personal restoration. But then notice what else? Death is abolished. And death shall be no more. Why is death abolished? Well, if, you, if we read the first 20 chapters of Revelation, we would discover the fact that he had wiped, away, wiped out sin. It's gone. Cast Satan into the pit for all eternity. No more consequence for sin because there's no more sin. Death has been abolished, which means that presence of death that corrupts everything we do in life. Everything we do. Right? You know, when you're little, you love your birthdays. And then, eventually, they start becoming depressing realities, right? You start going, how did I get so old? What happened? Right? That, that kind of goes on. Why? Well, we don't want to get old because why? Well, we don't have to worry about that in eternity, right? It's done. No more death. That foreboding reality is gone over your life, right? So the physical, spiritual world unite, personal restoration, death abolished. Notice the next one, no more tears, neither shall there be mourning nor crying. You realize something. Nothing in this world ever satisfies. There's no, there's no satisfaction in this world. And really, what there is is pain. There's heartache. Right? E- e- even the most joyous experiences of your life end, and they become depressing at some point. You have the best vacation in the world. And on the last day of that vacation, like, oh, I've got to go back. Ruins it. All the way down to the pain of this, this life, and the, and the heartache, and the tears, and the crying that we feel. And all the sorrow that goes into every component of life. You realize this. Almost every experience you have in this world has sorrow attached to it. Gone. Eternity, that's gone. No more sorrow. Right? So the physical, spiritual world unite. Personal restoration. Death's abolished. No more tears. Look at the last one. No more pain. Notice, he says, nor pain anymore. Think about this. 
all of the nerve endings in your body and all of the, the, the things that allow, and all the emotions that you have will all be used to experience nothing but joy. That's what he's saying. Your physical body won't be that element where you stub your tongue and go, ah, right? And you feel that? You know, you know when you stub your tongue and it hurts? I just did that to wake people up. Okay, a little yell there. No. You feel that pain. Picture those nerve endings only being used for joy. Picture God allowing you to experience all the pleasure of this life physically and emotionally. No more pain as well. Then notice the way he ends that. For the former things have passed away. The world as you know it will not be like that in eternity. It's gone. How certain is it? Notice verse 5. And he who seated, seated on the throne, right? That's God speaking. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Take note, this is the guaranteed future, what he's saying. This is eternity for the child of God. And in fact, just to confirm it, look at verse 6. And he said to me, It is done. Exclamation point. It's done. Now he's telling this to John. And he knows John is getting a vision of this. Yet he's telling John, it's done. And then he says, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. Right? I am the God of all history. I'm the one who started it. I'm the one who's going to complete it. This is where I'm taking the end for my children. It's done. And notice, all of this is by grace. Notice, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Isn't that incredible? This life is yours without works. I'm not telling you to earn it. I'm not telling you you've got to sacrifice. I'm not telling you you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to reach this point. If you come and say, I need that. It's yours without cost. All by grace. Now, that's the future of the world. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That is an incredible reality for the child of God. An incredible reality. Now the question is this. What does that have to do with the incarnation? Well, when Jesus came to this world... He came to this world to start that process. So when he came to the world, he came to begin that process. So when you look at the incarnation of Jesus, what you're looking at is him beginning a process that will end in Revelation 21. Now let's look at this. Let's look at a fresh look at Christmas here. Let's look at the incarnation. What I need you to do is go back to the Gospel of Luke. Since we've been studying Luke together, let's just find this in Luke. Okay? Now, what I, I want to tell you this as you turn back to Luke. Turn to Luke 1, by the way. These thoughts are so big that I don't have enough words to put around them. So you're just going to have to track with this and, and realize that this is a fire hose coming at you, these ideas. This is so big. 
and, uh, and, and that's okay. Let's just spend the rest of our days trying to, uh, to study it and know it because it's so incredible. But, but here's what I want us to look. I want us to, to look at the coming of Jesus at a few passages here in Luke. And I want you to listen for Revelation 21 as I read them. I want you to listen for how Jesus inaugurated and began the process that will end in Revelation 21. Okay, so here we are in, in Luke 1, verse 26. We're going to deal with the angel Gabriel talking to Mary. Okay, notice what he says in 126. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at that saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel said to her, Now here, I want you to listen for Revelation 21. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, there's a lot in here, but there's just one component I want to focus on. Angel comes to Mary. You're going to have a baby. What does she say? Uh, how? I'm not married, and I have kept myself. Impossible. And he says, the Spirit of God will come upon you. And you will have a baby. And this baby will be holy. What is this baby? He's God and man. What is in her womb at this moment? The union, the spiritual world, and the physical world coming together right there in her womb. The first shadow, the first picture, the first glimpse of heaven coming and uniting with earth. Right? He says, I saw this glorious heaven and it's just coming down. And she says, how in the world are we going to have a baby? Heaven, God Himself, is going to come into your womb and the two worlds will unite. The incarnation. That's what the word incarnation means. It means to turn something into flesh. We talk about carnivorous animals. Carnivorous, carnivore, flesh. Where the word flesh incarnate means to turn it into flesh. God becoming flesh. The spiritual world, the physical world, uniting at one moment in time. It's a beautiful picture right there. It's happening right there in front of us. But then it goes on. It wasn't just in Jesus. Now this God-man comes into the world and he begins to do his work. And he's going to announce to the world the work that he's going to do. And so he's going to preach his first sermon. He's in a synagogue. The text is Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. He's going to read the text, and then he's going to preach the text. Now in Luke chapter 4, you can turn there, verse 18, we see this moment. Luke 
Jesus gets to the place where it's written. He's, he's preaching his first sermon. The text is Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 is a prophecy of what the Messiah will do. So he reads it and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recover sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then what does he do? He goes right down in verse 21. He says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's it. That was his sermon. Short sermon. I'm going to do that. I've done that. Now what's he doing? What is Isaiah 61 saying? Look at these terms. Proclaiming good news to the poor. Proclaiming liberty to the captives. Recovering sight to the blind. Setting at liberty those who are oppressed. Proclaiming the joy of the Lord. What's Revelation 21? You are set free. You've been healed. You've been restored. You've been brought into a place where there's no more tears. You are in the place of of glory. And Jesus is coming and saying, I've come to bring that kingdom now. I'm doing that work right now. I'm calling, I'm bringing that work of freedom and release and healing and hope to you now. That is why he says, pray Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let the kingdom come now. So what do we have right now? Jesus brings the peace and the restoration of the kingdom that will come in full. He starts displaying it now. He starts giving pictures of it now. This is what his ministry is. Now you see, when we look at the incarnation of Jesus, we have to realize... We're not just looking at the birth of a baby. We're not just looking at a nice little serene night, family night, hangout night kind of a thing. We're looking at Jesus entering into this world and beginning the work of restoration that will eventually culminate in Revelation 21. Which means that when I look and I read the Gospels and I read what Jesus has done in this world, it gives me hope that that future is going to happen. When I, when I see him doing it in part now, it gives me the confidence that he'll do it in full later. And so there's an awe in this, and there's a confidence, a hope in this, isn't there? That what Christ began, when he came to this world, he will complete. Now, what does that mean for me? Let's talk about the implications of that in my life now. What's the implications of that? Well, in order to do that, let's just jump over to Luke 9, another passage we study. I want to look at this in Luke 9 for a reason. Luke 9, 1 and 2, we have Jesus sending out the 12. Now, what I want to do is I I recognize this is the, the mission for these apostles. And I don't want to overextend that. And What I want to do is I want to just analyze what Jesus told them to do. I want to just take that apart a little bit. And when we analyze what Jesus told them to do, I think we suddenly start getting an understanding of the mission that the apostles had and then recognizing that they've given us that same mission. They've passed that baton to us. But also then it expands our understanding of what it means to be a Christian, I think, and our purpose in life. Let's look at their calling here. Hopefully this will make sense as we go through it. And he called the twelve together. And he gave them power and authority over demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. 
Now that's quite, uh, you know, a pretty powerful description, right? They had a power and authority over, over the devil and over diseases. They were to proclaim the kingdom of God, and they were to heal people. Now we have to ask ourselves, what is going on there? What are some of the themes that are present there? Well, if we kind of put this together, and we look at where the world's headed, and we look at what Jesus said he was going to do, it only makes sense that this would be the mission he'd send the twelve on, right? Because his mission was to come and to bring the, the, the power of that kingdom that will come in full to start manifesting it now on earth. So if he's going to call people to serve him and to be in mission with him, aren't they going to be doing the same thing? Shouldn't they be manifesting that same kingdom? And so what, do they, what are they doing? They are manifesting to the world that evil and the bondage of evil has been broken in Jesus. When he came to this world, he broke the bonds of evil. And they came, and they had authority over this to say, listen, Christ broke it. It's done. They're also proclaiming what? God's presence is on earth now. The kingdom is here. God is with us, Emmanuel. And they're also proclaiming, you can be restored. You can be restored. You see, what they're doing is they are participating and the same work that the Messiah is participating in. And that work that the Messiah is doing has its end in Revelation 21. Do you see all that? So God gave me a really great practical application of this yesterday. I was actually going to get away for a little bit, for a couple hours, to kind of review the sermon. And as I was driving along, I got this craving for a seltzer water. Strange craving, but I had one. So I decided I'm going to go get a Perrier or Pellegrino at Walgreens. So I go to Walgreens. I grab my, my bubble water, and I'm waiting in line. A very long line, right? Because going to the store this time of year is a long line. And as I'm waiting at the end of this line, the line is starting to build behind me, and I realize it's not moving anywhere. Something happened at the front of the line that jammed the computer. And the poor clerk is just frantically trying to figure this thing out. And, and, and there's only one clerk, and the thing is just going, the line's getting longer because there's a lot of people, and people are starting to get impatient. They don't like that when that happens. Now, it's not like that clerk woke up and said, hey, I can't wait to jam that computer when there's a long line, right? I mean, this wasn't the highlight of her day. But anyways, she's standing there. She's getting frustrated. She calls the manager, the whatever, the boss, and boss comes over and starts doing all the stuff to get the thing unjammed. It takes quite a while to get the thing unjammed. Finally, it unjams. Unfortunately, in the stress of that moment, they didn't think through the fact that the boss should actually go over and open up the second line and get people through, right? So people start offering that suggestion in a not-so-polite manner. Why don't you open a second line, right? You know, so she runs over and opens up the second line. It's pretty tense. And as I'm standing there, I'm actually thinking about my sermon. And I'm thinking about this moment, and I realize, you know, I should apply my sermon. Because, you see, the mission to the kingdom, the mission to the, to the children, those that are part of the kingdom, those that have been called into the kingdom, is to manifest the power of the kingdom of God on earth right now. And so I say, God, let me be a vessel for your kingdom right here. This woman needs to know supernatural peace. When I get up to the counter, she is 
going to be crazy because everybody's yelling at her like it's her fault. And what I want to do is I want to be a peacemaker. But I don't want it just to be like, nice Steve, right? Go up and tell a silly joke like I can do sometimes. I want it to be supernatural peace. God, would you give me the ability to manifest your kingdom and to speak into her life? So I get up there. She was gone! So <laughs> they replaced her with someone else who I think knew how to work the keyboard. No, I'm kidding. So I didn't get to live that out. I wish I had a great story to say she's in Christ now and a missionary in Africa. But, uh, but that didn't happen. So there's no real big ending to that other than I was thinking that needs to be the prayer. God, let me manifest your kingdom and let me do what this moment needs to put on display that the fact that the power of evil has been broken, that your presence is here and you can be restored in Christ, let me show that, let me live that, let me tell that. Whatever the moment requires, let me be that. The moment might not require you to, to, to walk them through the sinner's prayer, so to speak. The moment just might require a touch on the arm and to say, you know what? You are doing a good job. That's it. Maybe it just requires you to touch someone. Whatever it is, it's saying, I want to be an agent of the fact of this true message that Christ came into the world. He broke the power of evil. God is on this earth and you can be restored in Christ. That's the purpose that comes from this. So, now, let's wrap this up. Let's kind of tie all these big thoughts together. Began this message by talking about the fact that this is an anxious world. People are worried. People are concerned about their future. They're concerned about the economics of the world. They're concerned about the pain of this world. They're concerned about the social things, war, what's going to happen, my future, my children. Right? It's easy. There's a whole boatload of anxieties that are going on in the world right now. How does Christmas answer that question? The incarnation of Jesus is this message. That God has broken into this world with the power of His kingdom. And He has come to set up His presence here to break the power of evil and to restore people. And this work that He's begun now will culminate in a glorious glorious state of eternity in which what we experience in part will be experienced in perfection. You see, the incarnation speaks directly to the fears of this world. And that should cause us to have three things. One, awe. We should worship Christ. When we sing these songs, these Christmas songs, we should just be worshiping Him for the depth of who He is. Two, it should give us hope. My present is not the definition of my future. My future defines my present, and my future is set. It's done. God is the Alpha and the Omega. He said it. And what I see Christ do in part, what I've seen Him do in, in the Gospels, and what I've seen Him do in my own life, is nothing more than just a small glimmer of what he'll do in full. 
I should have confidence. That should govern my life. Not whether or not the fiscal cliff gets ended, not whether or not there's peace in the Middle East, not whether or not the social mores of the world gets fixed. It should be in the fact that what God started in Christ, He will complete. Here's my hope. And third, it should give me a sense of purpose that I can come into this world and recognize, hey, God, if this is what you're doing, let me be a part of that. Whatever your gifts are, whatever your talents are, it doesn't matter now. Suddenly you can just say, God, let me just be an ambassador of your kingdom and do what this moment requires. Do what this moment requires. So why don't we pray to that end right now? Would you join me in prayer? Father, we do thank you that what you began in Christ, that the kingdom has come, the apostles went out and they preached the kingdom. They preached it to the nation. They went and they said, Emmanuel, God with us. You've begun a process that you will complete in Revelation 21. Lord, may we see Christ in a whole bigger way and may we just worship Him all the more. May we have confidence that this world is not defining reality, but You have engaged this world, You are doing Your work, and that what You began, will You will complete. May that give us a sense of rest. And Lord, may we join in in that work and be ambassadors of that kingdom. That whatever this moment needs, that our mind would be triggered to say, Lord, let me be an agent of Your kingdom now. And so, Lord, I just pray that this hope would fill our hearts, that we might worship You because You are worthy of our praise. In Christ's name, Amen.